This This is the Pat O'Keefe Show. ESPN Television is revealing the All-Star starters. The All-Star game will be in a week and a half in Los Angeles. A little bit of bad news for Mets fans right off the top of the show. Pete Alonzo was one of the two finalists. They're doing it differently this year Uh, at every position. They narrowed it down to two finalists, and then fans for a week or so were to vote on one or the other. Uh, Alonzo was one of the two finalists at first base, but he does not earn the starting spot. That goes to Paul Goldschmidt of the St. Louis Cardinals. Alonzo, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to imagine that he would not be in the All-Star game at Dodger Stadium, but he will not be in the starting lineup. Uh, Trey Turner, as I'm watching here, uh, a narrow vote over Dansby Swanson. Turner will start at shortstop. We'll continue to follow that. Uh, Obviously, we'll be following the Yanks and the Sox the Mets and the Marlins as well uh, once that does get underway. Uh, We'll start with the Yankee game from last night as uh, the Yankees took the first of the four-game series against the Red Sox 6-5. Another good offensive night for Josh Donaldson who is starting to show signs that he can be more of a contributor to this Yankees lineup, that he can carry more of the load. Look, I keep harping on the same thing over and over again, but one of the facts of the matter with the Yankees is despite their record, and they're the first team to Major League Baseball to reach 60 wins, and they did it by a long shot. No other team with more than 54 victories. And despite all that, the Yankees haven't gotten big performances from Donaldson. They haven't gotten even a big performance from DJ LeMahieu, although he's been solid. Glaber Torres has been much better than he was the last two years. John Carlos Stanton's power numbers are there. We know what Aaron Judge is doing. And then the Joey Gallo, Aaron Hicks situation continues to present itself. But despite all that, the Yankees are on top of Major League Baseball by a pretty wide margin. So as you look towards the second half of the season, and we are now into the second half of the season for the Yanks and for the Mets and for most of Major League Baseball, as you look towards the latter half of the season, uh, what does this team look like? If it gets contributions from Donaldson, you know, I'm not asking for 2015 Toronto Blue Jays, American League most valuable player, Josh Donaldson. He's a much older player right now. That ship has sailed, but you would love to get more than 220 in average power numbers. And for the last week or so, that's exactly what you've been getting. And the good news is all of these guys, the three biggest culprits in the Yankees lineup this season, as far as not producing, have been Donald, not in this order, but they've been Donaldson, Gallo, and Hicks. All three of those guys are above average defenders. So at least you still get the defense with those three guys. And that is an overlooked factor in the Yankees' success this season. Let's think back to the offseason when Yankee fans were up in arms after last year's one-and-done playoff performance at Fenway Park when Garrett Cole couldn't get out of his own way and the Yankees were sent home by the Boston Red Sox. But that entire Yankee season was so frustrating. What did the Yankees do or not do last season that was so frustrating for fans? Well, first of all, they were not situational hitters. They were an all-or-nothing lineup. They are not that this year. Even Aaron Judge and his 30 home runs, and Judge is back in the lineup tonight as the designated hitter, Game 2 of the series against the Red Sox at Fenway Park. Even with Aaron Judge hitting 30 home runs, they are not an all-or-nothing outfit. They have a ton of home runs. They lead Major League Baseball in home runs, but they're not all-or-nothing. The offense, you have guys in the lineup. It's kind of the opposite of what it's been the last couple of years. 
in recent years, you've had guys whose numbers have been good, but when they get up to the plate in a big spot, you knew they were not going to come through. Stanton, Glaber Torres for a while, Gary Sanchez, even though his numbers weren't good, so you knew he wasn't going to come through. Now this year, you've got Kiner Falefa, average numbers, seems to come through more often than not. DJ LeMayhew, his numbers this year have been average, but in a big spot, in a big situation, he seems to rise to the occasion. Judge has been phenomenal all the way through. Jose Trevino's numbers have gone up in those pressurized big situations. Glaber Torres has been the master of the walk-off hit this season. So that's one difference between this Yankees team and of recent years. Another difference is the defense. And that is where, and this is where Brian Cashman and Aaron Boone and the rest of the group that put this Yankees roster together, that's where they deserve a lot of credit. Probably more than they're even getting. Because in the offseason after the Yankees flamed out in the wild card game last year, Yankees fans, there were so many shortstops on the open market, from Carlos Correa to Trevor Story to Corey Seager, and Yankees fans wanted one of them because shortstop was a disaster last season. It started the season with a second baseman as your everyday shortstop in Glaber Torres, and it finished the season with a third baseman as your everyday shortstop in Gio Urshela, and neither of those scenarios were ideal. They finally moved two-thirds of the way through the season. Torres off of shortstop, back to second base. His offense improved almost immediately. Urshela did a solid job, but he's not a shortstop. He's a very good glove at third base, but not a shortstop. So the Yankee fan wanted one of these high-priced $20, $25 million a year shortstops because there were so many of them available on the open market, and I just named a few of the names. And they didn't do that. Instead... They brought in a very, very high-quality defensive shortstop in Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. And in the process of doing that, they got rid of a habitual problem on this Yankee roster in Gary Sanchez. And I was one of the last men standing on the hill of those Gary Sanchez defenders. I mean, I was just so smitten by what he did in 2016 and what he did, especially during the playoffs in 2017, that I just made excuse after excuse after excuse. I was talking about this earlier in the week, earlier in the week in the context of Sam Darnold. You know, I was making excuse after excuse after excuse for Sam Darnold for three seasons. Jets finally moved on from him. He went to Carolina last year, and he still stunk. And that's what you get with Gary Sanchez. And after last year, I was finally out of excuses. So for the Yankees to improve their defense at shortstop while getting rid of a habitual problem in Gary Sanchez... That was their biggest move of the offseason, and that has paid enormous dividends because the defense, the pitching, both starting and relieving, has been the backbone of this team and the backbone of this team's success. Kiner Falefa at shortstop, you finally have a shortstop in that spot. No more Gary Sanchez behind the plate, whether it's Kyle Higashioka or more often than that, Jose Trevino, the defense up the middle has improved tremendously. And this shocked the heck out of me recently, learning that according to the metrics, fan graphs, etc., that measure uh, defensive performance, Aaron Judge as a center fielder is actually a better performer than Aaron Hicks as a center fielder. Now, I looked at Judge up until now as a guy who's certainly competent at that position, and you want him in center field 
because that gives you a lot more lineup flexibility. But now you're telling me on top of that, he's actually a better defensive center fielder than the guy who you have inked to a long-term contract largely because of his defense in center field? I mean, how much money is someone going to have to pay Aaron Judge after the season? That's a different story. But that's where the Yankees are built this season, on pitching, starting, relieving, and defense. And that is what they aimed to do in the offseason. So to bring it back to the beginning of my conversation with the struggling Yankees in the lineup, those three in particular, Gallo, Donaldson, and Hicks, at least they do still give you above-average defense. So when they are not hitting, and Gallo hasn't hit all year, Hicks hasn't hit for most of the year, and Donaldson hasn't hit for a large portion of the year. But when those guys are not hitting, when they're in the field, when they are on defense, they are all still doing things to help the team win. Last night's win in Boston was indicative of who this Yankees team is this season. I mentioned it last night. I was right here on the air after the game ended. A 6-5 to Yankees win. They jumped out to a 5-0 lead. They survived two home runs and five runs batted in by Rafael Devers. And the Yankees scored what was ultimately the winning run when Boston couldn't catch a pop-up in the infield with two outs. And Aaron Hicks scored from second base on the pop-up by Jose Trevino that should have ended the inning. Those are games that the Yankees have lost in recent years. Now they're winning those games with regularity. And they're winning them against the teams who they lost those games to in recent years. Most notably, the Tampa Bay Rays and the Boston Red Sox. And the reason for that is the fundamental way that this team has been constructed. Pitching and defense. And of course, it does not hurt that you have a great, great hitter and a great, great player anchoring that lineup. So you can look ahead for this Yankees team as we enter the second half of the season. Not a lot of drama around the Yankees before we get to the postseason. I guess the only drama that will remain is how healthy can you get before the playoffs and can you hold off the Houston Astros for the best record in the American League, which would give you home field advantage for the American League Championship Series, which is very, very important. So when you look ahead to the second half of the season for the Yankees, those are the things that you are going to look at. And if you can add more to your offensive repertoire than just Aaron Judge and sporadic contributions from the likes of LeMahieu and Torres and Stanton, if the guys in the bottom half of the order can get involved, the Donaldsons, the Hicks, dare I say Joey Gallo, although I don't have high hopes for that happening, then you can really come even closer to the ceiling of this team's potential. Now, that's the positive for the Yankees. Last night, indicative of who they are. Big hits, grand slam by Donaldson, back-to-back home run by Aaron Hicks, taking advantage of other teams' miscues. They've done that all season long. And then, of course, a lockdown, lockdown performance from the New York Yankees' bullpen. Wandy Peralta to Michael King to Clay Holmes. I'm seeing here right now two Yankees were finalists to start in the All-Star game. Jose Trevino is one of them. And he loses the vote to Alejandro Kirk of the Toronto Blue Jays. Deservedly so. It would have been an unbelievable story if Trevino started the All-Star game, considering he started the season as the Yankees' backup catcher. He's come back to earth in recent weeks, for sure. His numbers 
are indicative of that. Doesn't really take away the importance that his role has on this Yankees roster. Like for all the reasons I just mentioned and laid out regarding the improved defense and the timely hitting, Jose Trevino has been right in the middle of that. We got Jacob Perry and Tom Bauer producing the show. I know you guys are keeping an eye on this. Have they announced the outfielders yet, guys? The starting outfielders in the American League? I don't think they have because Stanton is a finalist, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yes, he is a finalist. Uh, Going into today, I saw he was slated to start the All-Star game but might lose out to George Springer. Right now, they just announced Shohei Otani will be the American League's starting DH over Jordan Alvarez. So the outfield should be on deck here. So, Tom, as far as the local Yankees and Mets go, just Alonzo, and he lost to Goldschmidt, Trevino, and he lost out to Kirk. And Judge is already starting the All-Star game because he was the top overall vote-getter. I didn't miss anybody, did I? Uh, no, you have not. We should be expecting some possi- some cer- certainly some bullpen arms and maybe a starting pitcher or two from the Yankees, but that's not going to be announced yet. Um, and then possibly a pitcher or two from the Mets, but again, that won't be announced yet either. But position players, you mi- uh, you got everybody. Yeah, we're trying to follow along the live broadcast on ESPN Television right now, the live announcement of the All-Star starters. Uh, Aaron Judge locked up his starting spot in the outfield last week by being the top vote-getter in the American League. Ronald Acuna Jr., the top vote-getter in the National League. When you look at the potential All-Stars for the Yankees, now they're not going to get 10. I remember one year during the three-peat, the Joe Torre heyday, when the Yankees went to the World Series every year and therefore Joe Torre managed the American League All-Star team in the World Series every year. I think one year there were seven Yankees on the All-Star team and there was outrage throughout Major League Baseball. That may have been the year that Jeff Nelson was All-Star worthy You know, Nelson was a dominant, dominant right-handed reliever, setup man out of the Yankees' bullpen. He he does some media, and he does a good job. He was always always outspoken. You know, you never got the sense that he and Joe Torre uh, had this really close and tight relationship. And I do remember one year when Nelson's numbers were good enough to make the American League All-Star team. He didn't make it. And he lashed out. It was upset with his own manager, Torrey, for not putting him on. But I also think that was the year where there were seven Yankees who made the All-Star team. So at a certain point, you have to say, how many is too many? I'd say seven is probably the ultimate limit. And I know the Yankees have been dominant this season, but let's just talk about who could have a case. Obviously, Judge is already in. Stanton, we're waiting for the outfield starters to be announced on ESPN in a moment. We'll try and hang out for that before we go to break. Um... Actually, they're going to break themselves. So we'll step aside and we'll recap which Yankees could find their way onto the all-star roster in the American League. Of course, which Mets could find their way onto the National League all-star roster. Pete Alonzo will not be starting. You can assume he will be there in Los Angeles. We're following along Yankees and Red Sox, Mets and Marlins from City Field. Plenty of NFL talk tonight. Plenty of NBA talk. You know what? I haven't gotten into the Knicks a lot. The Knicks, by the way, have done some pretty good things in the last week since NBA free agency began. But all of the talks when I've been on the air has been about the Brooklyn Nets and what they're doing or what they're trying to do or if we could figure out what they're trying to do. We're going to talk about the Knicks tonight as well. Are they better than they were last year? Could they, after a step back last season, thrust themselves right back into the playoff picture in the Eastern Conference? I'll give you a hint. I think so. We're just getting started. It's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. 
We're following along the ESPN television broadcast right now as the Major League All-Star starters are being announced. There was a second Met who was a finalist. I forgot about Starling Marte, who had the big double to tie the game at the top of the ninth inning in Cincinnati the other night. Marte was one of four finalists to start in the outfield in the National League, two of whom would have been chosen because Ronald Acuna Jr. had already locked up his spot by being the top overall vote-getter. Uh, long story short, Marte will not be starting in the All-Star game, beaten out by Mookie Betts and Jock Peterson. They will join Acuna in the starting outfield for the National League. It'd be hard to see Marte getting a spot, at least on the initial roster. You never know about injury replacements or people electing not to play. Uh, Marte's had a very solid first half of the season, but with so many candidates and obviously needing to select at least one all-star from every single team, it would be hard for me to imagine him uh, earning an all-star spot on the National League uh, roster. Yanks and Sox are uh, in the top of the first inning. Yanks have two on and one out. Bottom of the first at City Field. Uh, the Mets with a runner on. Both of those games are scoreless. As we went to break, and we're awaiting the last outfield announcement for the All-Star starters. That is the uh, outfield for the American League, in which John Carlos Stanton is a finalist. But as we went to break, I was trying to call down the list of Yankees who could actually be all-stars this season. I mean, Judge is an all-star. Anthony Rizzo has a case. I don't see him getting there with his low batting average of 223, although batting averages are not what they used to be. We'll find out in a couple of minutes if Giancarlo Stanton is a starting outfielder in the American League. 237 average, 21 home runs, 54 RBIs. But like I said before, this Yankees team is built on defense and on pitching. So when you want to list the litany of Yankees who could be all-stars, you just look at their pitching staff, both starters and relievers. Garrett Cole, 8-2, 3.26, all-star worthy. Nestor Cortez, 7-3, 2.44, all-star worthy. Luis Severino, 5-3, 3.11, all-star worthy. Even Jordan Montgomery. In an era when wins and losses, or specifically wins, don't really matter anymore. Three and two, but a 3.19 ERA. I mean, one of the underrated things about the Yankees' season has been the amount of times that their starters have taken the ball and gone to the hill. They've had remarkable consistency in their starting rotation. Cortez is making his 16th start tonight. Tyone and Montgomery have started 16 games. Severino has started 15 games, and last night was Cole's 17th start. Outside of their starting rotation, Clark Schmidt has started a game, J.P. Sears has started two, and Luis Heel started a game. And a lot of those situations were because they had to call up an extra pitcher due to a doubleheader. All right, American League outfield all-star starters are about to be announced. I didn't even get to the Yankees' bullpen. Clay Holmes will be an all-star. You could also make a strong case for Michael King as an all-star. So here's the four finalists, Trout, Springer, Stanton, and Goriel. And Stanton wins the vote. All right, so John Carlos Stanton will start in the all-star game along with Mike Trout. It's a pretty good outfield. Aaron Judge, Mike Trout, and John Carlos Stanton, the starting American League all-star outfield. It's Trout's 10th all-star selection. Uh, all uh, Two of the three of them, former most valuable players, Trout three times, Stanton once, 
and Aaron Judge. We'll see if he wins his first MVP this season. All right, so there you go. All-star starters in New York, Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, while Jose Trevino, Starling Marte, and Pete Alonso just miss out, although I would fully expect Alonso to find his way on the National League All-Star roster anyway. It's the fifth career All-Star selection for Giancarlo Stanton. He just, just edged out the two Blue Jays, George Springer and Lourdes Goriel Jr. All right, Pat O'Keefe with you here on 98.7 ESPN New York, 1-800-919-3776. So the positive from last night's Yankees 6-5 win in Boston was that it was the quintessential Yankees win that has gotten them to where they are this season. The negative, obviously, is Garrett Cole. And Garrett Cole is in a tough situation. He could have a lights-out season. He could win the Cy Young Award. He could start the All-Star game for the American League. He could have his best regular statistical season of his career, and he's had a lot of really, really good ones. Guys, I don't have Amazon Prime up right now. What happened in the Yankee game here? I see a 4 nothing. uh a 4 nothing lead for the Yankees. My goodness. Glaber yep. Torres, an RBI single to left center. And Josh Donaldson, a three-run home run to left. Boy, we started the show talking about if they can get anything out of Donaldson. So for the second straight night, the Yankees jump out to a 4 nothing lead in Fenway Park. This time before Nestor Cortez could even throw a pitch. Sorry, Jacob. I, I was able to pull it up before you were able to answer. But I appreciate you being there as always. All good, all good. Having, having a little trouble pulling up my Amazon Prime here to watch the Yankees and the Red Sox. We'll get that all sorted out. Uh, we'll flip on the Mets game now that I'm finished watching the ESPN uh, announcement of the All-Star starters. But back to Garrett Cole last night. And where he is in this Yankees uh, roster and, and situation. Garrett Cole most likely, barring something unforeseen, is going to get the ball for whenever the Yankees' first postseason game is. But my question to you is right now, if you're envisioning the Yankees starting an ALDS against the Red Sox or the Blue Jays or the Twins or the White Sox or any of those teams, or starting an ALCS against the Houston Astros, do you have confidence that Garrett Cole is going to get the job done. What has he done to give you the confidence that he can get the job done? Because last night was really his first big opportunity this season. Outside of opening day, and if you remember opening day, four batters into the season, Cole and the Yankees fell behind 3-0 to the Red Sox at Yankee Stadium. I throw that out for a number of reasons. It's the first start of the season. It was a shortened spring training. Cole took the mound that day knowing he probably wasn't going to pitch more than five innings anyway because he wasn't fully ramped up. It's tough to judge a lot on opening days, but Cole's having a really good season. And last night, he goes back to Fenway Park for the first time since his flame out in the wild card game. And the Yankees stake him. The Yankees stake him to a 5 nothing lead, just like they've done for Nestor Cortez tonight, except it's 4 nothing right now. And he could barely hold on to that lead. Now, to his credit, he didn't give up the lead. But we're talking about the Yankees' highest paid player at $34 million a year. The guy who was brought in to take away any reservations or concerns that he could get the job done in that kind of spot. And he has simply not done that yet. And he's in a situation now, Cole is, where it almost makes it worse 
the better he pitches in the regular season. And, and what's the reason for that, you might ask? The reason for that is the last thing you want to do is get a reputation as a guy who can perform when the pressure's off during the regular season. You can shut down the likes of the Texas Rangers and the Minnesota Twins and the Oakland A's and those types of teams. But when the lights come on and they're their brightest and it's the postseason or it's a big game or it's a nationally televised game or it's a rivalry game like it was last night in a charged atmosphere like Fenway Park and you come up small in those situations multiple times, that makes it worse. That gives you the reputation of someone who cannot handle the big spot or the big moment. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be. He's in the position now where he can't do anything to get rid of that reputation that he's developing except perform well in the postseason. Like I said, he could go after Oral Hershiser's scoreless innings record of 59 that he set in 1988 in the regular season. And if he takes the mound in game one, of the ALDS against the Red Sox and gives up a two-run home run to Rafael Devers, everybody's going to be here we go again. And I mentioned this last night. Cole's body language is very, very concerning. It really is. I mean, you like a pitcher to take some emotion to the mound, one of my favorite not only pitchers but athletes to watch and follow is Max Scherzer. And nobody's more emotional on the mound than he is. But he harnesses it in a way where he uses it to his advantage. Cole wears his emotions on his sleeve. And when one thing seems to go wrong, you can kind of see him letting down or unraveling a little bit. And that's the last thing you want from your ace, from anybody in your pitching rotation, especially your ace. I mean, this guy's supposed to be the most important guy on your team. That's why he is the highest paid player on your team. So my question to you, Yankee fans, and I'm sure a good number of you are tuned into the Yankees and the Red Sox, but on the off chance you can't find Amazon Prime to watch the game and you're listening to us, my question to you is this. Is Garrett Cole the starting pitcher on the Yankees in whom you have the most confidence to make a postseason start. And if it's not Garrett Cole, then who do you have the most confidence in? Is it Cortez? Is it Severino? Is it Montgomery? Is it Tyone? Or is it Garrett Cole? Cole clearly has the stuff. When he wasn't facing Devers last night, he was very good. He struck out seven batters over six innings. You take away the two home runs by Devers, he didn't give up any runs. But that's part of it. And the expectation for a guy like Cole is to not allow that to happen. So at 1-800-919-3776, my question is simple. Is Garrett Cole the Yankees pitcher in whom you have the most confidence in a postseason start? We'll touch on that. Yanks leading the Red Sox 4 to nothing with two outs in the top of the first inning. Nestor Cortez hasn't taken the mound yet. And the Mets are at City Field. A big weekend at City Field as Keith Hernandez's number 17 will be retired. The Mets and Marlins are scoreless in the top of the second inning at City here on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.
we went to the break talking about Garrett Cole because for the Yankees, you know, this is it's fun. Yankees, Red Sox, July in Fenway Park on a Friday night. It's always fun. You come to the end of the work week, you sit down and you watch a Yankees Red Sox game with all of that intensity and that electricity inside the building, whether it's Fenway or Yankee Stadium, and that's always fun. As uh, looks like Jesus Aguilar doubles into the uh, left. No, it wasn't Aguilar, but Miami doubles into the left field corner. Uh, so they lead one nothing here in the top of the second inning on the Mets. Um, but the uh, Yankees Red Sox scenarios, it, it's always you know fun when you have that type of atmosphere. Last night was a good atmosphere. You know the Red Sox fans were kind of sharpening their knives, waiting for Garrett Cole to return to the mound for the first time since his flame out on the wild card. Uh, some ups and downs. The final stat line, not pretty. And yes, you do want more than that from your ace pitcher. But the bottom line is that Garrett Cole and the Yankees won the game by a score of 6-5, to five, and that is indeed the most important thing. Let's get some reaction before we dive uh, headfirst into tonight's game, but let's talk about the Cole story because it is still an important topic. And first, the manager, Aaron Boone, on how was Cole last night? I thought it was great tonight. You know, it was other than obviously Devers who got him. Uh, I thought he was sharp. I thought his stuff was really good. Um, I thought he was, for the most part, um, you know, getting into some good counts and dictating counts, pounding the strike zone with all this stuff. Um, you know, Devers was just a handful for him, you know. Doesn't get the call in the Ploiecki, you know, check swing. I haven't looked at it, but it seemed pretty close. Um, you know, that kind of set up the second one. Um, but, you know, around Devers, I thought he was pretty sharp. Yeah, he was sharp around Devers. But the Devers at bats count as well. The two-run home run. The three-run home run after which Garrett Cole threw up his hand. So why, in Boone's opinion, was Devers such a headache for Garrett Cole? Well, he's great. I mean, he's a great player, great hitter, obviously. You know, I think that first one trying to back foot the slider probably and stayed on the plate, you know, it's probably down, might even end up in the dirt, and he's able to go down and and kill it there and then probably just pulled the change up just a little bit and think one of these times he'd roll over one or line out somewhere. He just hasn't given him a break at all. But, you know, you just got to keep plugging away at it. And, you know, that's a great pitcher against a great hitter. And, and you know, he's had some success, obviously. So, And, and he's gotten him on some different different pitches and some different looks, uh, which Garrett's tried to give him. So, uh, you know, we'll keep working at it. Cole went six innings, allowed five hits, including the two home runs to Devers. He struck out seven, and he walked three batters as well. He did pick up his eighth win of the season, eight and two, a 3.26 earned run average. Now we hear from Cole, uh, first and foremost on Devers, why is he so tough? Understanding he's a good hitter, but why do you think Devers in particular has been so tough against you? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I'm open for suggestions. You guys are all watching the game too. So, I mean, just, uh, yeah, obviously has the ability to ride the ball out at the bottom of the zone, has the ball, has the ability to catch up to my fastball. He's proven that. So, you know, both pitches were pretty well executed. I mean, I, I think we certainly discussed the situation when Matt came out and how he wanted to attack it. And, uh, you know, we missed on the first pitch. Obviously, we want to get a little bit of leverage there, but at the same time, we're not trying to throw very many pitches in the strike zone to him. Not super comfortable just walking him there, right? Putting him on. So it's kind of a tough call. Change up, down underneath, out of the zone. You know, he just winds up on corks, lets that bottom hand ride the pitch out. And we said, Homer doesn't beat us right here. So, you know, let's just go make our pitches. And, you know, we made our pitches, gave up a Homer, but it didn't beat us. 
Yeah, I, I, just, I gotta be honest with you. Um, the more I hear Garrett Cole talk in these situations, the more of an excuse maker he sounds like. And again, that is just not something you want from the ace of your staff. It's not. I mean, back on opening day against the Red Sox again, when Cole allowed three runs in the first four batters that he faced, they were delayed on the first pitch because of not only our national anthem, but in recognition of Ukraine's war against Russia, they had a singer from Ukraine sing the national anthem. And that pushed everything back by like three or four minutes. And Garrett Cole, after his slow start, complained that that threw off his rhythm. And I got to look, you've, you've got to be better than that. You've got to adjust. I mean, you can't control everything so that minute by minute by minute, it is laid out exactly how you want it or how you need it. Especially when you're that great of a pitcher. If the margin of error for your concentration to be where it needs to be or for you to be on point is that thin, then this is not the spot for you. And the spot I'm referring to is the ace of the staff. You need to be stronger mentally. And look, the sarcastic comment, I'm open to suggestions. Sure, you know, why don't you sit down with... uh, with Joel Sherman after the game, and he'll walk you through the at-bat of uh, Raphael Devers, and he'll tell you what you should be doing, or, or Meredith or Susan. They'll sit down with you, and they'll walk you through. You're open for suggestions. You've been doing this your entire life, and you're a very, very highly paid player for doing it. And the people who you're talking to, this I hate when athletes do this. You've got a job, and the media has a job. Their job is to ask you questions. All right, when you're given a 5 nothing lead and are the ace of the staff and you can barely hold on to that lead against your rivals, then the media's job is to ask you what happened. That's their job. Just like your job is to try to win a game when you get a 5 nothing lead, their job is to ask you what happened when it doesn't work out that way. You see how it all works? You know, Garrett Cole... I use Joel Sherman as an example. He was the first name that came to mind. Garrett Cole, I guarantee you, would not be as good a baseball columnist as Joel Sherman. And I'm fairly certain in saying that Joel Sherman would not be as strong a right-handed pitcher as Garrett Cole. Everybody has jobs to do, all right? Your job is to pitch effectively, and the people who you're talking to, or shall I say condescending to, is to ask you about the game. I just don't like the the body language, the excuse making, the condescension. It, this is July, and you're 37 games above 500. It's going to get a lot harder. Last year was really hard in Fenway Park when he did not come through. What's going to happen this year? when he struggles and gives up four runs in the fourth inning of game one of the ALDS against the Boston Red Sox? How do you think the Yankee fans are going to react? What will his excuse be then? Because despite the 60-23 and record, the historic win pace, the walk-off wins, the Aaron Judge home run chase 
This season means nothing if it does not result in a championship. And their best path towards getting that championship is with Garrett Cole pitching like the ace he is paid to be. Let's hear more from Cole last night. Outside of Devers, how would he assess his night? I'm pretty sure I'll get a question about Devers in a minute, so we'll just address everybody but that first. I would say that everything was pretty good. We were living on the corners all night. I thought there was one fastball that we put in a poor location to Cordero to start the inning off there, but I thought we made our pitches. I thought a couple of 3-2 calls didn't go our way, but kind of able to navigate around that. And, you know, hey, I think anytime we can get a win here, anytime we can, you know, hold them down less than what we got, you know, regardless if it's 5-6, to 1-0, 10-9, it's a good night. That's true, but there are some red flags. Your antenna is up with Garrett Cole because he doesn't seem to have this type of problem in you know Texas or Chicago or Minnesota he has this problem in Fenway Park and you can count on one hand the tough atmospheres that he's going to have to perform in for this team to get where it needs to be Fenway's on that list Minute Maid Park and Houston is on that list I mean that's his former team he hasn't done that yet in a postseason Go back to Houston in that atmosphere, in that building, with the roof closed. He's able to feed off that crowd when he was pitching for them. But he hasn't been on the other side of that yet. So that is what you're concerned with. And nothing, unfortunately, this is a tough spot for Cole. And I feel like I'm coming down a little too hard on him. He's still going to be an all-star, deservedly so. He's still your best option to take the ball in a playoff series, but he's got to be better than he was last night. That's the bottom line. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. On to the NBA, and we'll put aside the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving scenario for a moment. We'll, We'll dive into the Knicks because, to be honest with you, I haven't really had the opportunity to do that in the last week with all of the breaking news around the NBA being centered on the other team in this town, the other team always and continues to be the Brooklyn Nets. And as they remain in limbo, there's no real updates there. Uh, we'll, we'll hear the latest from those who cover the NBA for ESPN a little bit later on. But as far as the Knicks and the move for the Knicks today is that Taj Gibson was released by the team. Gibson had a non-guaranteed $5 million contract this upcoming season, and he unfortunately became expendable when the Knicks signed Isaiah Hartenstein to be their backup center two years, $16 million. So what does the Knicks rotation look like right now? And what it looks like right now may not at all resemble what it's going to look like on opening night in October. But right now, the starting five is reasonably status quo from last season. You have Fournier, you have Barrett, you have Randall, and you have Mitchell Robinson, who also re-signed. And the biggest difference, the biggest upgrade, is replacing Alec Burks, who was your primary starting point guard the second half of the season, and replacing him with Jalen Brunson. That is a significant upgrade on a number of levels. Brunson, first of all, is a better player. Brunson, second of all, is a point guard. And Alec Burks, look, credit to him because he was playing out of position last season. Now, it probably, for the remainder of his career, will enhance his value because, yeah, he's not a classic point guard that you want to plug in and have run your offense for 82 games. But he proved last year 
that he could handle that position, especially on the defensive end. That was the biggest reason they made the switch. But that's a significant upgrade there. Hartenstein is now your backup center as Nerland's Noel has moved on. The biggest question mark and the biggest key for the Knicks remains Derrick Rose. Now think back to this time last offseason when we were getting ready for the 2021-2022 season. Coming off the 41-31 and return to the playoffs, fourth seed in the Eastern Conference. The Knicks had a large overhaul of their roster last offseason. Reggie Bullock was gone. Evan Fournier came in. You signed Julius Randle to the large contract extension. You re-signed Derrick Rose. You re-signed Alec Burks. And you re-signed Nerlens Noel. You know, the biggest absence was they got rid of their starting backcourt. And by the way, they brought in Kemba Walker. That's the name I didn't mention. But essentially, they had a team that went to the playoffs. Their starting backcourt the entire season were two defensive-minded guards in Alfred Payton and Reggie Bullock. You replaced them with two offensive-minded guards in Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier, and the results bared that out. The playoff Knicks of two years ago were built on their defense and a fantastic season by Julius Randle. The Knicks last season took huge steps backwards in their defense. Going from Peyton and Bullock and replacing them with Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier is a significant downgrade defensively. What else went wrong last year? Well, another big part of your defense two years ago was Nerlens Noel. He averaged more than a block and a steal per game, which is very difficult to do. Noel was limited to like 20 games last season. He was a non-factor. Offensively, once Derrick Rose went out and once you couldn't play Kemba Walker on a regular basis, you essentially had no playmakers on the floor. And that is why Brunson is such a key addition. Now, opinions on Jalen Brunson's contract, four years, $104 million, range far and wide. The fact of the matter is, when you have to sign a free agent from a different team, you have to overpay. So I would ask anybody criticizing the amount on Jalen Brunson's contract and how much that is worth, I would ask you what you would have done instead. Would you have run it back with Alec Burks? Would you have started Emmanuel quickly at point guard? Would you have hoped for the best health-wise from Derrick Rose? That's certainly a tricky prospect. No, Brunson, it it was almost, and we'll see how this plays out, but it was almost a perfect marriage. The connections to New York, the father on the coaching staff, the father's agent running the franchise, the fact that he wants to come here, and that's an important piece because I know Over the last decade, you've had different executives whose number one job were to attract the star. Whether it was Donnie Walsh bringing in LeBron James. Whether it was Phil Jackson bringing in whichever star wanted to play for him. Kevin Durant or whomever. Or whether it was Leon Rose, agent to the stars, opening up his Rolodex and asking which one of those all-NBA players wants to come to New York. I think all three of those executives found out that is a lot easier said than done. Now, Jalen Brunson is not an all-NBA player. He's not even an all-star yet. He could be. Julius Randle wasn't anywhere near an all-star until he was an all-star two years ago. 
So Jalen Brunson could be an all-star. But what he is, is he is a high-level player who wants to play in New York. And that's a really, really good place to start for a guy who you need to be one of your leaders. He wants to play in New York. And he didn't leave Sacramento to come to New York. He didn't leave Detroit to come to New York. He left the Dallas Mavericks to come to New York. A team that went to the Western Conference Finals. A team on which he was the second best player. You know, people who do the thumbnail analysis of the NBA whenever a free agent signs for big money, they ask a question, well, could he be the best player on a championship team? Or could he be the second best player on a championship team? Or a team that goes to the finals? Or a team that goes to the conference finals? Well, what we know is that Jalen Brunson just proved that he can be the second best player on a team that goes to the conference finals. Because he was the second best player on a team that went to the conference finals. Now, was it enough to get the Knicks back in the playoff picture in the Eastern Conference? I think it was. Are they going to jump all the way to the number four seed? No. My warnings before last season were that the East was a lot deeper than it had been in quite some time. And that played out. But you look at what the Eastern Conference is right now. The Celtics won the East last year. They went to the NBA Finals, and they've improved. The Malcolm Brogdon trade, adding Danilo Gallinari. They have a really solid 7-8 man rotation. And you'll see, their experience of going to the Finals for players like Tatum and Brown and Marcus Smart this early in their career, that's going to pay huge dividends for them. The Bucks are still a championship-caliber team. I think they would have won the NBA championship this season if Chris Middleton did not get injured in the playoffs. The 76ers, they're still going to be a factor. You know, We'll see about James Harden. He's the key for them. Joel Embiid, by the MVP voting, is the second best player in the league. So that's the upper echelon of the Eastern Conference. I think Miami got everything they could have out of their team last year. I don't see, barring a big trade or personnel shift, I don't see a path for the Heat to sustain their success from a year ago. I see them coming back to the pack a little bit. So much remains unsettled because of the Kevin Durant situation, so I can't even give a handicap on what Toronto can be because I still think Toronto is the spot that makes the most sense for Kevin Durant. I think the Bulls are on the right track to be improved. Atlanta is still in the mix. And they've been aggressive this offseason. And who the heck knows about Brooklyn? But let's be honest. Can the Knicks, as currently constructed, surpass Charlotte, Cleveland, a broken-down Brooklyn team, Atlanta, Chicago, Toronto, depending on what they turn out to be? They absolutely can. The question for the Knicks next season is this. Who's going to be the odd man out? Tom Thibodeau, like most NBA coaches, doesn't like to play a deep rotation. Doesn't like a deep reservoir of guys in his mix. Well, if you count the Knicks rotation players right now, I get to 11. I mentioned the starting five of Brunson, Fournier, Barrett, Randall, and Robinson. If Rose is healthy, he's an absolute key to this team. Obi Toppin is your backup power forward. Isaiah Hartenstein is your backup center. Those guys are in the rotation. That's eight. Let's cap the playing rotation at 10. Well, there's three names left at the wing positions 
for two spots in the rotation. Emmanuel Quickly, Quinton Grimes, and Cam Reddish. So who's the odd man out? My initial guess is that it would be Cam Reddish because he was not really a big part of the rotation last year when he came over from Atlanta in the trade. But more importantly, when you look at their surplus of wing players, and these are young assets, and you can include Obi Toppin. I know Knicks fans would be loath to include Obi Toppin in a trade right now, but if you're going to go after somebody like a Donovan Mitchell, well, then you're going to have to give up, obviously, not only a plethora of future draft capital, but you're going to have to give up some young talent on your roster. And you do not, do not, do not want to give up R.J. Barrett. I am steadfast in that. I have heard people say that the only way to bring in Donovan Mitchell is to include R.J. Barrett in the trade. Then you don't make the trade. Donovan Mitchell doesn't make you a championship team. Now, he makes you a better team depending on what you have to give up to acquire him, but he does not make you a championship team. Mitchell, in many ways, going from R.J. Barrett to Donovan Mitchell, I think would be a lateral move. Because you can make the argument that we've seen the best of Mitchell so far. We certainly haven't seen the best of R.J. Barrett. The guy's improved each of his three seasons. Last year, for the first time, he was a 20-point-a-game scorer. He needs to work on his free-throw shooting. He needs to work on his shot selection. He needs to work on his offensive efficiency. But who thinks that he's not going to improve in those areas? He's a hard-working guy who wants to be in New York. He wants to be the leader of this team, and he has improved each and every season. That is not a guy who you give up on, especially for a player like Mitchell who's several years older and, yes, has terrific scoring capability, but Mitchell's defense, or lack thereof in the playoffs last year and in recent years, was a huge reason why Utah couldn't get out of the first round of the playoffs against the Dallas team that was missing Luka Doncic for the first three games. So replacing R.J. Barrett, and then you'd have to throw in draft picks on top of it and bringing in Donovan Mitchell, that doesn't get you into the top four in the Eastern Conference. Now adding Mitchell to R.J. Barrett and Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson, you know, now we're talking. If that's your starting five, you can give a Bevan Fournier a salary filler, and that would be absolutely fine. You have these 11 future first-round draft picks, many of which would have to be included in that trade. And then anybody off your bench, if you're the Knicks, have your pick. You know, you wouldn't want to give up Toppin. I actually am very high on Quinton Grimes. You know, the Knicks fan loves Emmanuel quickly although I certainly think he could be included in one of these trades. I can't see a team like Utah, if they're making a trade like this, they've already gotten rid of Gobert, and now if you're getting rid of Donovan Mitchell, I can't see Danny Ainge in Utah being interested in Derrick Rose, so you presumably get to keep him. You know, and now you're talking. So now if you can beef up your starting lineup, replacing a Fournier with a Donovan Mitchell, and keep somewhat of your integrity intact on the bench, and you do that by having a healthy Derrick Rose able to play at least 60 games for you, well, then you're a team that could really make some noise in your conference. But to me, that's really the only way the Knicks can approach this thing. 
you know, I think they're in a good spot right now just in terms of they have improved. And I say that with caution because last year we thought they had improved also. But last year when they brought in Fournier and Kemba and replaced Bullock and Peyton with those two guys, we were only looking at the offensive improvements. And yeah, Kemba and Fournier are better offensive players than Bullock and Alfred Payton. But we weren't looking at what it was going to do to them defensively. Brandon Nimmo just hit a solo home run to right. His eighth of the season. The Mets and the Marlins are tied at one in the bottom of the third inning. Yanks still lead the Red Sox 5-2 to two in the top of the third. Yanks are threatening again. Runners on second and third with nobody out. So the Knicks have already improved. They had to do some maneuvering around the NBA draft, trading four draft picks, trading those draft picks away to undo a lot of the bad moves they made last offseason. But for the most part, those are done. You know, when you look back at the Knicks' decisions last offseason, Kemba Walker, he's done. Not an issue anymore. He's moved on. Nerlens Noel, three years, $30 million for a backup center who ended up playing fewer than 30 games. He's gone. Alec Burks, pretty hefty price tag last offseason. He's gone making $11 million a year. You know, Derrick Rose is still here, but I still think that Derrick Rose, if healthy, as the leader of the bench unit, filling the role that he did two years ago, when he was probably, I shouldn't say probably, two years ago, Derrick Rose was the Knicks' second most important player. He got hurt last year, as he is prone to do, and will be more likely to do so the older he gets. But if he is healthy, I still think He's a very, very forceful player off the bench. Now, as far as Donovan Mitchell goes, all in for me is including R.J. Barrett. All in for me is including R.J. Barrett. Anything outside of Barrett to me is on the table. And I include Julius Randle, but again, I don't see Utah having any interest in Julius Randle's contract. So... On our morning show on ESPN Radio, Alan Hahn and Jay Williams on Keyshawn, Jay, Will, and Max spoke about whether or not the Knicks should go all in for Donovan Mitchell. Three unprotected firsts and a pick swap for a first for Donovan Mitchell. Not if even you a question. Could, would you do it? Yes. Because some people feel like Rudy Gobert is a three-time all, you know, defensive player of the year. Like, this guy impacts you. Is Donovan Mitchell a guy that comes into New York and gives you that kind of impact where you're willing to give up unprotected first-round picks? Yes, because that would be my backcourt for the future. I would be all in. All what in. are we waiting for? What are you waiting for? That's what I've said. Why did you collect all these draft picks? What are you like? What other star do you think will be available? Unprotected picks are very, very scary. But if you're in a position like the Knicks franchise is in, where it has been to the playoffs one time in the last nine seasons, then you have to pay a tax, so to speak, to dig yourself out of the hole. That's why the Knicks had to, in some people's opinions, overpay for Jalen Brunson. And if you have an opportunity to trade for Donovan Mitchell, look, you talk about, and Mitchell's got more value than Rudy Gobert. He's younger, he's a wing player. He's one of the best scoring guards in the NBA. In a playoff series, Mitchell is a more effective player than Rudy Gobert, especially when teams go small. But still, 
you see what Utah got for Rudy Gobert, five first-round picks, but no, here's the thing, the Knicks want to be good this year, okay? The Knicks want to be good this year. Utah's not interested in being good this year. So in the trade with Minnesota for Rudy Gobert, yeah, the Timberwolves gave up three rotation players, but they didn't give up any of their top players. You know, Carl Anthony Towns didn't go back in the trade. Anthony Edwards wasn't going anywhere. D'Angelo Russell wasn't in the trade. You know, it was Patrick Beverly. It was Jared Vanderbilt. You know, for the most part, the T-Wolves were able to keep the integrity of their team intact. If the Knicks can bring in Donovan Mitchell while doing that, and again, in my opinion, the only guy who's untouchable in this trade is R.J. Barrett. And I've had people tell me, you're crazy. R.J. Barrett should be on the table too. No, he shouldn't. Mitchell's not that good. Mitchell's never gotten his team to a conference finals. Jalen Brunson just got his team to a conference finals. But wouldn't you love to see Donovan Mitchell at his best, as we have seen him, with Jalen Brunson, as we saw him last year, with an improving R.J. Barrett, with Julius Randle somewhere in between the Randle from two years ago and the Randle from last season, and then Mitchell Robinson just doing what he does. Mitchell Robinson had a really good season last year. He was second in the NBA in offensive rebounding. The guy's got a great motor, and he's really turned himself into a bona fide starting NBA center. And let the chips fall where they may beyond that. You know, Utah's not going to take all of your depth off the bench. You know, maybe it's Toppin, and it's Quickly, and it's Quinton Grimes. And three first-round draft picks. Do you do that? I think you have to think long and hard about it. Would that make you better? It absolutely would. Your thoughts on this? 1-800-919-3776. An update on the Yanks and the Mets as well here on 98.7 ESPN New York. The, the scenario I, I pointed out before the break, the idea is just to continue to get better. And when you're a team like the Knicks that have gone to the playoffs once in the last nine years, and that one time you went to the playoffs, you lost in the first round in five games. You've won one playoff game in the last nine years. There isn't a magic trade. There isn't a magic acquisition. There isn't a magic draft pick that's going to turn you into a title contender or a conference title contender, a team that is consistently at the top of the Eastern Conference. Teams like Milwaukee right now, Philadelphia right now, Boston right now, Miami right now, and Brooklyn was the last two years. There is not that acquisition that is out there. So the thing that's available to you is incremental improvement. Signing Jalen Brunson, plugging him in as your starting point guard, and having him there instead of Alec Burks is incremental improvement. So would be Derrick Rose returning healthy and able to play. Incremental improvement would be adding Donovan Mitchell to the mix without having to give up too much of your rotation. And that is the very difficult part of being an executive in the NBA or in any sport. Figuring out the compensation. Yeah, of course it's easy to say the Knicks would be better with Donovan Mitchell than what they have right now. He's a better offensive player than everybody on their roster right now, including Brunson, including Julius Randle, including R.J. Barrett. He's a better offensive player than all of them. All-around player, I wouldn't go there because his defense is pretty bad. 
But if he can be a piece, an important piece, an important scoring piece, think back to that series I referred to two years ago, the playoff series between the Knicks and the Hawks. And Julius Randle was coming off his second team all-NBA season. And he was just under too much pressure and too much duress in that series. Atlanta had a game plan on how to stop him, and he did not have enough help around him. Now, if you look back to that series, what did he have around him? He had R.J. Barrett, who wasn't shooting well. He had Derrick Rose, who was the Knicks' leading scorer in the series. And outside of Rose, he didn't have anybody to help him out. He had nobody. So now what does Julius Randle look like two years later with Jalen Brunson alongside of him and Donovan Mitchell alongside of him and R.J. Barrett two years better than he was when they were in the playoffs against Atlanta? Not as much pressure on Julius Randle. He can fill a role. He can fit into a system. Julius Randle is not a player without skills. If the Knicks do hold on to Julius Randle, what you are hoping for from Julius Randle is for him to be somewhere in between what he was two years ago and what he was last year. It's unlikely he's going to replicate the season he had two years ago. That was He was one of the top 10 players in the NBA two years ago. Think about that. Last year, every single statistic was down. And then on top of that, he just didn't look happy. He had some, you know, riffs with the fan base with the media, I mean, all in all, it was not a good season for Julius Randle. Now, you can't withstand that again. But you can't expect what he did two years ago. So can we find a landing spot for Julius Randle's productivity somewhere in between 2021 and 2022? The more good players you put around him, the better chance you have of making that happen. All right, let's open up the phones at 1-800-919-3776 and start with Jose in Newark. Jose, what's going on? Man, you're, you're just great at your job because, I mean, that was exactly the question I was going to ask you is where do you see Julius Randle fitting in now and how, how good can he be? And, again, if we were to get a Donovan Mitchell, would that make him a better player? So I guess the question I want to ask you, Pat, is do you see him – Say in a perfect world, we do get Donovan Mitchell, and we have Jalen. We have a pretty good backcourt. Even though they, you know, there is a deficiency there in size and defense, do you see him as someone as, that'll be a keeper, or would you would you see him having to be upgraded and bringing in someone else, and you know that might be able to take us over the top? I think Jose that Julius Randle is somebody who the Knicks are always going to be interested in moving on from at the right price now. Randall, who also has four years left on his contract, he's not Kevin Durant. So he's not going to walk into Leon Rose's office tomorrow and demand or request a trade. He's going to play it out. So the way the Knicks, I think, approach this are their eyes and ears are always open to the possibility of a trade in which they can move on from Julius Randall, but only at the right price. But in the meantime, even if you don't get Donovan Mitchell... Julius Randle's going to be better this season because of Jalen Brunson. You know, think about this. Absolutely. What was Julius Randle's best season? It was two years ago. Who was the primary point guard for the Knicks two years ago? It was Derrick Rose. Rose. This past season, Julius Randle played the entire season 
without an actual point guard. Like I said, Alec Burks was forced into the role. He had good size. He was a better defensive player than Kemba Walker. But Julius Randle had to play that entire season without a point guard. And, and, and when you took out Alec Burks, then you brought in Emmanuel quickly, who also wasn't a true point guard. So now he's got a playmaking point guard in Jalen Brunson, Jose, and that's going to make him better. Absolutely. Final question for you. Um, same scenario, do you feel Tibbs would be the coach that could work all of that and, and get the best out of all of those players? Jose, thanks for the call. It's hard to say because Mitchell's not a defensive player. You know, Tibbs, I'm a Tibbs guy. I'm a big Tibbs fan. I love, and and it's not fair just to say that he can only coach defensive-minded players and not offensive-minded players. That's not fair. The question for Tibbs would be, can you coach your offensive-minded players? And we're talking now about Donovan Mitchell and Jalen Brunson in this hypothetical. We're talking about those guys specifically. Can you coach them up enough to the point where they're not liabilities on defense? Now, last year, he wasn't able to do that with Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier. But is that on Tibbs or is that on the players? I mean, Kemba Walker couldn't guard anybody. And Evan Fournier, a lot of nights, had no interest in guarding anybody. So, yeah, I think at this point in his career, Donovan Mitchell, back home, he's accomplished a lot with his offensive exploits. But there's still a lot out there for him to do. He seems like a candidate to me to buy in to Tom Thibodeau. You don't need Donovan Mitchell to be Scottie Pippen or Kawhi Leonard on defense. He's never going to be that guy. But can he be good enough to fit into a system where he's not a liability on that end of the floor? I think Thibodeau Thibodeau can get him there. But we'll see. Well, I mean, we, I don't know if we'll see. <laughs> a lot has to happen for us to see. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. So the Knicks in the Summer League starting five looks pretty good. Uh, some names that are recognizable to Knicks fans. Deuce McBride, Trevor Keels, the second-round draft pick out of Duke. Ferran Hunt, who had a cup of coffee for the Knicks late last season. And then Jericho Sims and Quentin Grimes. Those are your Knicks starters tonight in their first summer league game. Just saw Jericho Sims do something that he would never, never have tried last season when he got a lot of playing time the second half of the year. Now, Sims, wonderfully athletic player, really good motor, terrific rebounder. He's only about six foot eight, but his rebounding numbers offensively and defensively were very impressive for the amount of minutes that he played last season. Very, very limited offensive game. But a minute ago, he just grabbed a defensive rebound and dribbled the ball up court with a little bit of pressure before giving it off to one of the backcourt players. And that's what the Summer League is all about in Las Vegas. You know, doing things that you would not have the uh, permission or the authority to try in a regular season game. So we'll keep an eye on the Knicks and the Warriors. They're tied at 17 late in the first quarter. McBride has seven points, including a couple of three-pointers already for the Knickerbockers. Who are they playing against for Golden State? Well, Jonathan Kaminga's playing... Moses Moody's playing. Uh, Mac McClung, who once upon a time was a star for Patrick Ewing at Georgetown, is playing for Golden State as well. Again, the number to call, 1-800-919-3776. As we continue our NBA and Knicks conversation, let's welcome in Alex from Long Island. What's up, Alex? Hey, Pat. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing tonight? All right. Good, good. Thanks. Listen, I, you know, we're talking about Donovan Mitchell, and I have to tell you, where there's smoke, there's fire. 
I read today some comments he made about, uh, I guess he tweeted, build it up just to tear it down because of the recent trades. And, you know, interestingly enough, the Knicks not, you know, maxing out R.J. Barrett yet, I just wonder, and, and, I, and I, if I'm the Knicks management, I have to think about if I can ship R.J. Barrett and maybe Obi Toppin and whatever pick compensation Danny Ainge wants to get Donovan Mitchell, who clearly wants out of Utah. Wants out of Utah, he's a Mets fan, you know, loves New York. Uh, I do that because i got to tell you something. It just it brings the Knicks to a level where they'll be able to attract other high-profile free agents in the future. If you have a Donovan Mitchell, if you have a Jalen Brunson, that's a team that's on the precipice of being more competitive and competing potentially for, for a title. So you can get someone else in there. I don't think with R.J. Barrett and Obi Toppin, they're both nice players, very nice players, but I don't think you're going to get that. So I think the, the Knicks are thinking that as well, and I, and I suspect that we'll see them make a big push in the, in the coming weeks or months to, to make that happen. Yeah, I think I, I think they'll make a push as well. They're, they're certainly going to be one of the teams that, that stays involved because – a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, Alex, it does make sense. He's a New York guy. He's from Westchester County, Greenwich Country Day, grew up in Elmsford. I mean, first of all, that may be the first trade in NBA history where a Westchester County native is traded for a Westchester County native. Obi Toppin, uh, Brooklyn-born, went to high school in Ossining. I just think this scenario that you paint, Alex, is too much. You know, I think R.J. Barrett is, is too much. I, I'm higher on R.J. than you are. I would love to see... R.J. Barrett with Donovan Mitchell, with Jalen Brunson, with Julius Randle if he remains. I mean, what's the reason why they have accumulated all of this draft capital? Yeah, but 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 Pat, they're they're not gonna you know they're not gonna settle for what are you gonna give them Julius Randle? You know they're not gonna want they're gonna want talent back, right? They have to sell tickets. They have to be competitive while Danny Ainge rebuilds. So if you get up, you know, an R.J. Barrett, you can be topping. You know, you can put people in seats, right? If you're going to say, hey, by the way, we got uh, Julius Randle and, uh, you know, a number of, you know, a whole bunch of picks, you know, that's going to be hard to sell to the fans in Utah, right? You, you basically torn apart a team that was supposed to be winning a title, right? And now you're going to have, you know, you're going to go basically down into complete, you know, uh, uh, you know, destruction mode. Well, Danny Ainge, and Alex, thanks for the call, has built up championship teams two different times now. He broke the Celtics down. He hired Brad uh, – no, excuse me, before that. He built the 2008 NBA championship with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen. And then after the trade with Brooklyn, he broke it down. He built it back up. And even though he wasn't there this year, he built the team that just went to the NBA Finals. But where's the talent that he got for Rudy Gobert? He didn't get anybody as good as R.J. Barrett. So if Danny Ainge is going to take you to the cleaners for draft compensation, and I think that's what it's about for the Knicks and Utah right now. It's figuring out how much draft compensation to include, which is why the Knicks have been doing what they've been doing, accumulating all of these draft assets. So if you're going to give up significant amount of draft capital, and on top of that, young, inexperienced players like Obi Toppin, Obi Toppin is something. Emmanuel Quickly is something. Quentin Grimes is something. Um, Cam Reddish is something. You have a plethora of wings. Like I said, everybody's on the table. I, I don't. Utah's not taking Julius Randle. I already acknowledged that. Everybody's on the table, but R.J. Barrett 
and we'll figure out the draft compensation once you tell me who on my roster you want. Because they just traded Rudy Gobert for five first-round draft picks. And yeah, some players, but Patrick Beverly's not se selling tickets. Jared Vanderbilt's not selling tickets. But the one thing I do agree on, I think they're going to look to move on from Donovan Mitchell. And I think Donovan Mitchell wants out of Utah yesterday. When we come back, a very important night for a very important member of the New York Mets as he looks to rejoin the big club, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future. It's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.